You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. in San Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a historic day in Washington and for the United States. The first black woman is appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. What this means and how her confirmation could impact rulings on tech regulation. Plus, we'll get the latest on how the SEC might handle Elon Musk's delay in announcing his Twitter stake and what the penalty could be. We're also at the Kennedy Space Center, ahead of SpaceX's first-of-its-kind all-private trip to the International Space Station, put together by Axiom. We'll talk with the startup executive's chair about how it all came together and what it means for the future of space travel. And my exclusive conversation with the CEO of eBay, Jamie Inoni, on the future of re-commerce in a post-pandemic world and how eBay fits in. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson is now the first black woman to become a U.S. Supreme Court justice. The Senate confirmed Judge Jackson with three Republicans joining all Democrats in a bipartisan confirmation vote. Joining me now to discuss the significance are Jordan Rubin from Bloomberg Law. So, Jordan, just how significant is this? I do not think it can be overstated. That's exactly right. It really can't be overstated. The first black woman on the court, the first former public defender. It's really a big day, a historic day for the court and for the country as well. What can we expect from her in terms of rulings across a range of issues? So, as with prior nominees, the name of the game has been not giving any hints about how that's going to go. And Judge Jackson, soon to be Justice Jackson, she stayed to that script like prior nominees have as well. So that's going to be a bit of a wait and see. And another thing that's going to impact that as well is she just going to be one justice replacing a fellow Democratic nominee on a court that's dominated by Republican appointees. So as far as the impact in terms of rulings, that's something that we're going to have to wait and see, but certainly doesn't detract from the historic nature of the day itself. 
She could preside over some potentially momentous rulings on tech regulation. You've got Republicans and Democrats both pushing for better regulation of tech issues. She was asked a couple of times about this during the confirmation hearings. But do we have any indication of which way she might lean? We really don't, not just with tech, but in other areas as well. She really stuck to that script of not giving any substantive answers of how she might rule. And so that's something that we're going to have to wait and see when a case might come up, whether it's in tech or in any other area as well. All right. Well, we'll be watching over the next several decades. Bloomberg Law's Jordan Rubin, thank you. It is now day three of Elon Musk on Twitter's board, and there are some risks with the SEC looming. Did Musk violate rules by waiting to declare the size of his Twitter stake? Bloomberg's Mark Bergen here with more on that story. Mark, what do we know about whether Elon Musk broke any rules here? Uh, well, right now we know that his disclosure period, he was he was meant to disclose his share above 5% according to the SEC rules, and he went several days past that before disclosing, uh, and of course, uh, as soon as he disclosed, the share price jumped up, I think, from about $39, $39 up above 50 I believe, um, and so that, that he was buying shares at that cheaper rate, and, and the assumption is the market um, would have, uh, if, if he disclosed it when, when at the 5% threshold, uh, it would have been a much higher price. Uh, as we know, uh, Elon Musk has uh, had his history of what I'll say uh, generously is sort of a casual disregard for the SEC um, and its rules. And so it's unclear if this was intentional or, or accidental. Now, as I understand it, being a little late with your 13G for a passive investor might not necessarily stimulate the SEC to bring a case, but Elon Musk could be different. It, why is that? Right, and then later this week, so after uh, first coming out as a passive investor, he's uh, has since refiled uh, as an active investor and, and then joined, joined the board, uh, although he's promised not to, to go with 15%. Uh, I, I'm assuming here, you know, uh, there's some good coverage in the Washington Post about this. Uh, certainly, uh, Musk has a history with the SEC, and so he probably gets a lot more attention uh, than any other Twitter board member or someone else to pull this off. Uh, Matt Levine, uh, who probably a lot of the viewers are reading, has some great series of columns this week about this uh, and how just singular Musk is to, it seems like, at least uh, flaunting the rules. Matt Levine, one of our own Bloomberg Opinion columnist. What could the penalty be? Uh, I don't know at this point. I mean, the SEC, uh, I guess it's fair to say they haven't been, you could call them a little toothless thus far. Uh, and it's certainly, you know, there, there are talks that um, for Musk prior run-ins that he would, uh, if not be removed from Twitter, at least pull back on some of his unorthodox tweeting. And that clearly hasn't changed. What comes next here? Obviously, uh, we're all wondering how Elon Musk could potentially change Twitter. Yeah, I mean, certainly, like, you know, there, there's some enthusiasm from, from the Twitter rank and file, from, from what I talk, at least um, our understanding, and probably chiefly because their uh, their share price has gone up. Uh, you know, Elon's, a, a, in parts of Silicon Valley, a pretty well-respected technologist. He's very passionate about uh, what Twitter is dipping its toes into, decentralized protocols, open source, uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, as a reminder, Twitter is chiefly an advertising business. Uh, Elon Musk famously doesn't advertise for any of his companies. 
companies. Um, so that, you know, he's not bringing uh, advertising expertise, although they, they they have on that on the board right now. Uh, he's certainly bringing, uh, you know, he's a prolific tweeter. He's got a huge following. Uh, Twitter has probably outsized drama even before this for the size of the company, and it doesn't seem like uh, Elon Musk is going to uh, limit that drama going forward. Bloomberg's Mark Bergen. Thank you. Lots of unanswered questions. Coming up, an exclusive interview with eBay CEO Jamie Inoni, where we'll talk about trends in re-commerce and how Gen Z is giving the platform a second life. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. shopping has skyrocketed amidst the pandemic and now eBay is out with its annual re-commerce report showing that Gen Z is becoming a bigger driver of secondhand sales. Joining us now for an exclusive interview is the CEO of eBay, Jamie Inoni. Jamie, great to have you back here on the show. So how is Gen Z boosting this revolution in re-commerce? Yeah, well, Gen Z is really driving it. You know, when you look at Gen Z, just in 2021, 80% of Gen Z has bought online, and a third of Gen Z started selling online last year. Uh, and re-commerce really aligns with their values. If you think about, you know, that, that demographic, you know, they really want to make sure they're finding unique, interesting items. But importantly, they really care about sustainability and how important that is. And that's why, you know, this is so important for that generation, and, and we're really leaning in to support that. Gen Z is also typically more price sensitive. How are they responding with 40-year inflation? Yeah, you know, it's not just Gen Z. It's really across the board. If we look over the last two years, 82% of people uh, have been selling secondhand goods. And when you think about high gas prices and inflation, et cetera, eBay is a great place to turn to to sell your pre-loved items. You know, the average household has $4,000 of items that they could sell and less than 20% of that is online. And like you said, there's amazing values in that pre-loved. You know, take our certified refurbished. If a Gen Z needs a new laptop, they can buy a certified refurbished product. It comes with a two-year warranty, 30-day hassle-free returns, eBay money-back guarantee, and it's a like-new product. And importantly, they're saving a product from going into the landfill. Now, you were the COO of Walmart for many years. You were the CEO of SamsClub.com. The existential question for eBay seems to be just how big a market can reselling 
really be? You know, it's massive. We just had our investor day, and I talked about a $1.4 trillion TRAM, TAM, uh, total addressable market. And in fact, it's actually growing faster than new in season. So non-new in season is going to have more growth over the next four or five years. If you look at any category on eBay, sneakers, handbags, collectibles, uh, trading cards, sports equipments, we're only high single digit or low double digit penetrated. So there is a lot of opportunity and a huge TAM for us to go after. When you last reported earnings, though, we saw eBay lose active buyers. And I know you said at the time it was because of a reduction in promotions. What kind of marketing do you think is worth it to reverse that trend? And, and where does that number of active buyers ultimately settle? Yeah, you know, we're really leaning into our enthusiast buyers on the platform. This is 19 million enthusiast buyers who buy 71% of the GMV. And they're not only growing, but they're actually spending more on the platform. And they're the heart of what makes this platform really healthy. So we're really pleased. They're, they're going across categories. So they may come into, let's say, our parts and accessories area. And enthusiasts will buy $1,200 in parts and accessories. But then they'll go on and buy $1,500 in other parts of the site. And that's one of the real special effects of eBay. And we're seeing that really across the board in, in all of our focus categories. You're also pushing for eBay, and some people may not realize this, to become more of a destination for luxury goods. You're authenticating handbags, for example. But the perception of eBay, I think, for a lot of people still might be eBay is like an online swap meet. How do you reverse that? Yeah, it's changing massively. You know, we started with authenticating sneakers over $200, and it's been an amazing experience. We've been growing double digits on the backs of triple digits. We're doing the same thing in handbags. We're doing the same thing in luxury watches. You know, every day, incredible products are sold. We just sold a Tom Brady card for $2.3 million on the platform. We sell hundreds of thousands of dollar watches on the platform. So it's really changing. And things like our certified refurbished program, where we put eBay money back guarantee and a two-year warranty, it's making people really comfortable with the platform and consumers are really leaning in. What are the bright spots in post-pandemic e-commerce as people return to stores? And are there those uh, certain categories that you think are fading because people you know, can go back to the stores in person and, and, and won't come back? Not really. You know, We think uh, the metrics that we're seeing are not really pandemic-related. When you look at people selling secondhand goods or buying secondhand goods, they're leaning in even more. You know, When times are tough, people look for the amazing values that we have on eBay. In fact, a lot of our sellers on the platform start as what I call accidental entrepreneurs. They just needed a little bit of money, so they started selling on the platform, and they turned that into a business on eBay. In some cases, that's a small business where they go on to hire employees. And that's really the special part of the eBay platform and what we're still seeing. We're seeing accidental Gen Z entrepreneurs emerging on a lot of social platforms like TikTok and Instagram. How are you or can you use some of those platforms to drive Gen Z interest? You know, it's really interesting how much they've taken to what we're doing. Take sneakers. We had a viral campaign go out on sneakers. We had 12 billion views of our last TikTok campaign and 2 million user-generated videos just highlighting what's happening with the sneaker drops on eBay, the great products that we have, and the amazing values. And so it's exciting to see how that community is really embracing eBay. I know there's been talk of an eBay digital wallet, but not yet about accepting crypto. Are you thinking about it? What kind of conversations are you having about potentially accepting cryptocurrency? 
Yeah, we are not accepting crypto right now. We just added Klarna. We also take Afterpay. So we now have financing and invoicing options on the platform. And what I'm really excited to talk about is we just started to have a digital wallet with a cash balance. So now if you've sold a couple of products on eBay, you're going to have that cash balance sitting right there to go ahead and find your next treasure that you want to find on the platform. So that's going to be rolling out over the course of this year. And we think will be really exciting as it comes to payments on the platform. Could you accept crypto someday? We're really just focused on what are the best types of payments that we need. We're continuing to expand them on the platform uh, and go from there. All right, eBay CEO, Jamie Inoni, great to have you on the show. Thank you for stopping by. Axiom and SpaceX are on track to launch the first all-private crew to the International Space Station Friday. The four-person crew scheduled to take off from Kennedy Space Center in Florida in the morning, dock with the ISS on Saturday. SpaceX is providing the Falcon 9 rocket and Dragon capsule for the crew, but it's Texas startup Axiom that has brought this all together. Their executive chair, Cam Gafarian, joins me now. Cam, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure you're very excited about the next 24 hours. You are saying this is the first all-private mission to the ISS, but the Russians have been bringing civilians up there uh, for a pretty penny. What makes this different? Well, this is the first um, American uh, uh, all all fly, uh, American uh, all private astronauts to the International Space Station, and um, you know we're so delighted that we're able to make this happen uh, and uh, bring this uh, you know uh, all together. How much interest is there for private trips, and how big do you think this market could be? Well, I think the market is actually uh, growing uh, quite a bit. Uh, I mean, this is the first first time that we're doing this, but uh, we actually pretty much have sold AX2 mission and pretty much AX3 mission, and uh, we're now trying to sell some seed on AX4 mission. So um, it's quite popular, and uh, I'm hoping that it becomes even more popular after AX1 mission is completed. And obviously the ISS schedule can be complicated. Are you planning to add many more? Yes. Um, I mean, we, uh, you know, just, just so you know, Emily, um, uh, Axiom Space is a lot more than just uh, bringing private astronauts to the space station. We're actually building our own uh, space station, Axiom Space Station, which will be launched uh, in mid-2024. And it will dock with the current ISS uh, and will be uh, operating jointly with the International Space Station until ISS retires uh, about uh, 2030. And then we will separate from International Space Station and we will be the first commercial space space station operating in orbit. So how does this differ from the model that Roscosmos has been offering for so many years? Yes, so um, uh, Roscosmos used to take, you know, some astronaut to space, as you indicated earlier. Uh, what we're doing is this is really uh, the first step, the first beginning of many beginnings that we're creating at Axiom Space. And it's really a first chapter, very historic, 
in 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 human uh, space exploration in really with a commercial space space taking private astronaut to international space station and we will have many other missions along with this uh, roscosmos took maybe one or two in the past uh, to International Space Station. Uh, by the way, these are private astronauts. They're all going to be performing many experiments uh, in space, um, and we'll be conducting um, uh, research, uh, educational activities, clinical research, all sorts of things. That's very different just taking a tourist to the International Space Station. So the cost for an Axiom trip to the ISS, what's the, what's the cost of a seat at this point? We're, we really are not at the liberty to talk about the financials at this point. <laughs> the Washington Post reported it was $55 million a seat. Is that ballpark? Uh, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> All right. Um, so, you know, obviously the space landscape is evolving dramatically and the war on Ukraine has changed things. H how is uh, the relationship between private companies and the U.S. government changing as a result of not necessarily being able to use or staying away from Russian services and Russian airspace? Yeah, so that's a, you know, great question. I mean, you know, a space station and collaborations, actually, uh, it's an, with, with the international partners, has been a great thing. And it's been going on for over 20 years and it's continuing. And it's, it's something that is, has unified uh, you know, all the different countries together and the collaboration has been awesome and is continuing to be that way and uh, we expect it to continue uh, at this point. Um, as far as uh, the other issues that's going on, uh, that's really between the U.S. government, NASA, uh, and uh, Russian agency. From our perspective, um, you know, we're, we're working with NASA very closely, we're working with SpaceX, and we're expecting the collaboration uh, with uh, Russia and Russian space agency to continue. All right, well, we'll be watching the launch tomorrow, of course. Our Ed Ludlow will be joining us from the ground a bit later in the show. Axiom co-founder and executive chair, Cam Ghaffarian, thank you for joining us and good luck. Well, tech regulation is on the minds of lawyers in Washington this week. The American Bar Association is holding its annual antitrust meeting. Margaret Vestager, executive vice president of the European Commission responsible for competition, is one of the special guests. She spoke earlier with my colleague David Weston about what the ultimate goal of antitrust regulation is to help smaller companies grow or protect users. Well, I think as consumers, we are poorly served uh, if we have to rely on, uh, on the big companies uh, themselves. You know, I just spoke with a smaller company the other day, and they said our payment solution is so much more advanced uh, than what we are forced to use with, uh, with one of the big companies. We want space to be able to show people what we can do uh, when it comes to payment solutions. Uh, I do think that innovation thrive, uh, flourish, uh, when you have uh, an open and contestable market. And that is what we need when it comes to technology, uh, to, to see it move on, not just depending on those who keep the gate. All right, coming up, closing the gap in tech equity. That's what software company Carta is trying to do with the help of some celebrities. They'll join us next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. 
Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. What do Serena Williams, Kerry Washington, A-Rod, Tan France, Ashley Graham, Steve Nash, what do they all have in common? Well, they've all come together to raise awareness about the power of having equity and how it's helped them in their careers. They've now teamed up with Carta, the valuation software company, to offer a free curriculum to help anyone get started. Joining me now is the CEO of Carta, Henry Ward. Henry, thank you so much for joining us. A lot of people don't understand how equity works. They don't understand how to negotiate for equity. Why do you think it's so important that people learn exactly what this means? Yeah, we think uh, the world's sort of in this era of payroll where people rent their time for money uh, and the next era of labor compensation will be an ownership one uh, via equity. And it's obviously started in Silicon Valley where, uh, you know, it'd be weird to work for a tech company and not get equity. It doesn't, it's not true in other sectors or any other parts of the, uh, the economy. And so a big part of what we're trying to do is educate the world about uh, equity as a, a way to create wealth. Uh, and compensate people. It's weird that people, you know, it, I think in 50 years, people will think it's crazy that we went to work for companies uh, and all we got was cash, uh, that we got on a payroll system and that was it, uh, that we didn't own any of the company that we helped build. Uh, I think Silicon Valley is ahead of the world uh, on that and, and hopefully uh, the rest of the world will follow suit. Walk us through some of the lessons that you are teaching in this curriculum. Well, so, so last year, half a billion dollars of uh, stock option grants weren't uh, exercised by employees. Most, if you talk to employees about why they didn't exercise their stock option grants, it's almost always because they didn't know how, they didn't know if they should, they didn't know what the implications were. So a big part of uh, equity education right now is just helping employees understand what equity is, how it vests, what it's worth, what the tax implications are, and how to think about exercising that and getting liquidity on that. Uh, it's such an underserved um, community. You know, so many employees uh, work at startups uh, and have no idea what the equity or capital structure of the business is. Uh, and a big part of helping them figure that out is how do we realize that half billion bucks uh, that employees didn't get last year? Uh, how, do we, how do we put that back in their pockets? Now, one of the celebrities you've partnered with is Serena Williams, and she has said she didn't know about equity until much later in her career. She wasn't taught this as a child. I actually had an opportunity to interview her about her new venture fund a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about lessons that she's bringing to venture from the tennis court. Take a listen. It's really about having a winning attitude and really just about um, understanding that you have to put a lot of time into this, you know, and you have to put a lot of effort into learning. Why do you think financial literacy isn't taught to kids at a younger age? It's a great question, Emily. I, I don't know. When I was in high school, I had to take uh, a class called Medieval History. It was required to graduate, but nobody taught me how to balance a checkbook. 
Uh, I don't know why uh, schools don't teach uh, financial literacy all the way from just, you know, how, how do I plan a budget uh, uh, all the way to, you know, how do I evaluate a, a stock option grant for, for a, a company that I'm, I'm going to join? Um, I think a big part of the private sector and where we can be helpful uh, is creating education around that and sharing it with the world. Now, Carta is an equity management platform, but you have faced your own challenges with equity issues. You were sued by a former employee over gender discrimination, and this was an employee who was in charge of some of your own equal pay efforts. I'm curious what you learned from that. Yeah, it's it's a really tough one. The the story around that wasn't that, you know, we may have not been fair in gender pay. The story was that we cared a lot about equality and, and we we're hypocrites. Uh, I think it's really tough when you do these things. Um, you know, obviously we think we're we're not only a, a champion of equity, but we practice it at, at home. People are allowed to disagree with that and, and we'll figure it out. We're we're a couple years into this, we'll probably be a couple years more. Carta, meantime, aggregates data about private companies' valuations, cap tables, and in this very rapidly evolving macro environment, higher inflation, we're seeing startups doing down rounds. I'm curious what data you're seeing in, in, in terms of valuations being under pressure and how that'll translate into equity for employees. Yeah, it's, it's been fascinating to watch. Obviously, there's this great price resetting that's happening in the public markets. Uh, you know, private markets tend to tend to lag the public markets largely because private private company CEOs don't have to enter transactions if they don't want to. And so, once they see repricing happening in the private markets, they don't necessarily reprice their companies. They'll just delay a financing uh, and and wait till uh, markets uh, uh, um, correct uh, in their favor. I think what's happening now is we're we're seeing still at the early and mid stages just record numbers of deals being done. So that hasn't slowed down at all. Uh, in the late stages, we're seeing some of these. These deals get pushed out, but we haven't seen a repricing happening. You know, last year we did about seven billion dollars of secondary liquidity via Carta X uh, for employees. This year we'll probably do ten to twelve billion, uh, and we haven't seen repricing happening uh, in the late stage growth market. But we have seen deals get pushed further down uh, as CEOs are waiting to see if they can uh, reprice their stock in a, in a way that they want to. Interesting. All right, Henry Ward, CEO of Carta. Thank you for joining us and. Um, spreading this idea about financial literacy when it comes to equity. It is time now for our crypto report with Robinhood being the latest firm to support transactions on the Lightning Network, which is promised for Bitcoin believers with higher volumes of payments, especially across borders. Our crypto contributor, Shanali Basak, here with more. Shanali? Emily, there's certainly been a lot more talk about the Lightning Network here, and Lightning Labs is really the biggest company that's developing software that's powering the Lightning Network. And, you know, let's talk about what it's used for. It's used at places like Robinhood is facilitating the Lightning Network. And Vlad Tenev is actually an investor himself recently in Lightning Labs, Starbucks, Pizza Hut, Twitter. It's also, when you look at all the payments that are happening in El Salvador, the Lightning Network is a big part of what's helping make that possible. So to talk about this more is Lightning Labs CEO, who develops the software that powers this Lightning Network. She's joining us live now from Bitcoin 22 in Miami. Elizabeth Stark, thank you so much for joining us. Elizabeth, you know, you have this new funding round that has come from Brevin Howard, Valor, Vlad Tenev, others. What does this actually help you do? And what does this new protocol, Taro, actually do in terms of helping making Bitcoin transfers much easier? 
First of all, thanks so much for having me uh, and greetings everyone from Miami here for the Bitcoin 2022 conference. Um, so it's been quite a week for us in the Bitcoin and Lightning community. On Tuesday, we announced our uh, $70 million Series B fundraise for my company, Lightning Labs. We're building infrastructure for the Lightning Network. And what Lightning does is it enables people to send instant high volume transactions for low fees over Bitcoin. Lightning is a software layer on top of Bitcoin. But we also announced a new technology we've been working on called Taro, which enables people to, in the future, send assets, stable coins, and really any other currency that's out there potentially using Bitcoin as a global monetary network. So we're really excited to be working with these investors that understand this long-term vision and mission to bring financial access to the world. Now, financial access, how quickly, Elizabeth, do you think that this could start to spread among other uh, countries, um, uh, aside from El Salvador, that are looking to adopt Bitcoin at a greater rate as a currency? Bitcoin is global, the internet's global. And really what we're seeing is Bitcoin enables the internet of money. Today, I can embed a photo in any application on the internet, you know, Twitter, WhatsApp, email, all of those. But why can't I easily send money or value globally, natively embedded on the internet? So the way I think about Lightning is it enables two kinds of use cases. One, use cases that weren't previously possible, and two, access for those that previously didn't have it. And this is a big global issue and an international issue. We look at a country like Nigeria, 70% of the population is 30 or under. Well, what do they all have? mobile phones, but many of those people may not have access to a bank account or something like a visa or the traditional financial system. So the way that I think about it is this technology will really enable people across the world to tap into the internet of money. What the internet did for access to knowledge and information previously, look at something like Wikipedia, Bitcoin and Lightning are doing for access to money and financial services. Elizabeth, mainstream awareness of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin has shot up like a rocket over the last couple of years, but there's still such a long way to go to clarify confusion around digital assets. I'm curious what the themes are at Bitcoin Miami this year. What is everyone talking about? What are the you know, most hyped issues and the, the biggest problem issues? Great question. Um, I think adoption is huge right now, right? The way that I think about it, the vast majority of the users in the future will not even know that they're using, say, the Bitcoin or the Lightning Network. They want it to just work. They want access. Broadly, in the cryptocurrency space, we see a lot of technologies, but some of them are in, uh, in search of a solution as opposed to thinking about real problems for real people. So what I'm seeing now is a focus on real use cases, on real adoption, and the global element. I was just chatting uh, with developers today from places like Nigeria, from places like uh, Guatemala. So this is a global community. And this is also what I think distinguishes the Bitcoin community from some of the other, um, say, projects that are out there with the focus on actual adoption and real use cases, as opposed to speculation. Um, shout out to my friend Lynn Alden, who has written great macroeconomic research and studies Bitcoin and Lightning. And she talks about the utility to speculation ratio and how Bitcoin and Lightning are very utility oriented as opposed to merely speculation. Jack Dorsey is one of your backers, as I understand it. What is it like working with Jack? I know Twitter was an early adopter. Jack has been incredible in terms of believing in Bitcoin, understanding its value as the internet's native monetary network. He's tweeted about Lightning. He participated in this thing called the Lightning Torch when people back in the day sent and received Lightning transactions globally. And we're really grateful to have him on board as an investor and as a believer. And one thing about Jack is he deeply believes 
in this mission and sees the potential for the internet of money and sees the global aspect of tapping into this and really expanding access for everyone around the world. Well, it's interesting because Twitter was such an early adopter of this, it, it really was a signal that the creator economy could also use Bitcoin in a greater way. Uh, what have you learned from the adoption of Twitter to the Lightning Network and what do you expect now that Robinhood and other big companies are also adopting it? So what we're learning is this technology is global and there are so many people around the world with untapped talent who need opportunities. And okay, so let's say there's somebody in Argentina or India who is a creator or a coder. Well, if you want to send smaller values, tapping into the global monetary system, the fees will exceed the amount that you want to send. So what this technology does that's so powerful is it lets you do what we call streaming sats or satoshis, the lowest denomination of Bitcoin. And we see this in use today with podcasts. There's some great um, podcasting 2.0 applications, many thousands operating on Lightning. You can pay per second. There are media aspects where you can pay small values for, say, articles. There are social networks, chat apps, and those are all operating over the Lightning network like Zion and Sphinx. So what we're seeing is a lot of people around the world are now able to tap in. It's early days don't get me wrong, uh, to the capacity to earn and to be compensated for their creative work as opposed to in the legacy system where the fee would actually be higher than the, the amount that yeah, somebody makes. Elizabeth, the fees are something I want to get your opinion on here. There's a lot of mistrust of the typical financial system, the big banks, credit card companies that is emerging over there at Bitcoin 2022. When you look at the fees that are being charged uh, for cross-border transactions, for transactions at all, do you think that the financial system as it exists now has failed us? Largely, yes. So why today do I need to send a paper check here in the U.S.? Why do I need to wait days for an ACH payment to go through over an app like Venmo? In the U.S., we're actually behind. We see in emerging markets, they have faster systems and they can settle far faster. But when it comes to interoperability and the global element, there's still not a way that has been widely adopted by billions for people to send, you know, the way they're sending data and messages on the Internet today for them to send value and money. So I do believe you have a number of legacy players who it's not necessarily in their interest to adapt and to build these new faster low fee technologies because they're making a lot of money off of the high fees are charging. Now, enter something like Lightning. Today, you can send less than one cent on Lightning for a fraction of that in a fee, right? We see people in Starbucks in El Salvador spending a couple dollars on a coffee today, and the fee is a fraction of a cent. So the technologies we're building, like this new Taro protocol, where you can then send assets, stable coins over Lightning, opens up access to people around the world and opens up access to merchants who want to be able to receive but don't want to pay, you know, several percentage points plus a base fee in order right. to do so. Elizabeth Stark. Elizabeth, thank you for the energy and passion that you brought to this conversation, co-founder of Lightning Labs, as well as Bloomberg's own Shanali Basik. Thank you so much. Looking forward to Bitcoinizing the world with Lightning. <laughs> All right. now to SpaceX's all-private mission to the ISS, the mission part of a bigger picture effort to have future private space stations in orbit for years to come. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow spoke to NASA's head of human spaceflight, Kathy Leaders, about where the U.S. Space Agency fits in to the equation. 
Well, you know, part of our job, I feel like, is to figure out how to do it and okay. then make sure that we're working with companies and other people so that they can learn from us. Okay. And so that's really what's been going on over the last, you know, two or three years is that we've been working with these different companies, having them do our lessons learned, actually allowing them to use the contractor that we use for training and and continue to bring industry in on the lessons and the 50, 60 years of space flight that we've had so that they can do it themselves. So you, you run space operations, which includes yes. humans, NASA astronauts going from Earth to the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. What do you get out of this? What does the Axiom mission give NASA? I'm hoping it gives a whole bunch of us new rides in the future. Okay. And, and in 20, 30 years, guess what? I'm able to do science and research and technology development on space stations that I don't have to invest in, that I'm buying a ride in. You know, what we're thinking about is our future. We're thinking about Leo economy for the, you know, the next hundreds of years, and this is our first step for us to, in the future, be able to buy a, a laboratory in the sky, time on a laboratory in the sky, while we're investing in going to Mars and, either, and even farther out. So it's an idea that the private sector kind of takes the cost burden of what's needed to be in low Earth orbit and you deploy resources to other projects. That's basically what you're saying. I actually feel like it's about the government had a vision when they set up NASA. And one of the parts of that vision was us to enable our commercial economy and the launch economy and the space economy. And so what we've been doing is figuring out how to do things. And then when we feel like industry's at an advanced enough stage to be able to do it, then we hand that piece over, allow there to be an economic value for it, and then move on to the next thing. This was really an important idea when NASA was set up. NASA's head of human spaceflight, Kathy Leaders there, and I want to bring in our Ed Ludlow now is just a few miles from the launch pad for an update on how it's all going to go down. Ed, what are we expecting from this launch tomorrow? Well, we're still expecting it to go, to go ahead for one thing. I mean, you see around me, it's pretty stormy here in Florida in Cape Canaveral, and there's a lot of concern that the mission will be impacted by that because it's an instantaneous launch window. That means if they have a degree of uncertainty around being able to launch at that time, they'll scrub or postpone because the trajectory of the Falcon 9 booster rocket with the catcher on top needs to match up in a way that it can reach the ISS on that trajectory. So there's confidence, you know, we've heard from a lot of national officials today, a lot of Axiom and SpaceX officials that will happen, but there is a backup window on Saturday morning. Is Elon going to be there? No, he's been busy with Twitter lately, but are we expecting yeah. sighting? <laughs> It's, a, it's an interesting question. He has been at crew missions before, right, where SpaceX have taken NASA astronauts up to the International Space Station. But he doesn't come to every flight, every human space flight. He came for Inspiration4, for example, and met the crew there uh, and on their return. So I, I'm not quite sure if he'll be in the room, although he's got a private jet. So he could go from Austin very early to Friday morning to where I am now. Well, I'm sure he'll be tweeting, and we can count on that. Meantime, things right. on the International Space Station are tense given the conflict in Ukraine. Right. How has the game changed? 
Yeah, and I spoke to cafe leaders about that as well, and she pointed out that, you know, space has always been a pretty peaceful place between the Russia and US, no matter what's going on back down on Earth. The reality is that relations between the United States and Russia are not good right now, and that has impacted the space relationship. You had the head of Ros Cosmos, the Russian space agency, say just on Saturday that the economic and trade sanctions that are in place on Russia are damaging to the relationship, and if they're not lifted, we could even see Russia pull out of the ISS agreement. You know, Russia and the US have been in partnership with the International Space Station since 1998, and it went into orbit in 2000. There are three Russian astronauts or cosmonauts on the ISS right now. And I asked NASA, well, does that mean the Axiom crew can go and say hello to them? Because for want of a better explanation, there's a sort of US-European side of ISS and a Russian side. And what I was told by CAFE leaders is the Axiom crew could go and meet the Russian astronauts if the Russians choose to invite them, but that's at their discretion. Well, we do know now that a seat costs about $55 million. Axiom right. confirmed that earlier in the show. Not necessarily uh, economical for most people. And I assume that right. cost will come down someday. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and also remember the big cost of launch is kerosene and with everything that's happening with oil supply right now and oil products, that's a factor. SpaceX has raised prices on its other products because of inflation, you know, in terms of what they charge satellite operators to go on the transport emission. But yeah, it's a tough one to say uh, on the economics of it. It's a similar price to what Axiom char uh, SpaceX sorry, charges NASA per seat for astronauts though, so it is comparable. All right. Ed Ludlow at Cape Canaveral. Ed will be at the Kennedy Space Center for the launch over the next 24 hours. Of course, if it happens, Ed, uh, we'll be watching your coverage. Thank you. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We will be back tomorrow with that SpaceX mission from the Kennedy Space Center. We'll be Space Station. We'll bring you all developments. Also, don't forget to check out our new podcast. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg.